And we welcome you to the Monday Morning Show on WGTD. I'm Gregory Berg. And we welcome you to the Monday Morning Show on WGTD. I'm Gregory Berg. Netflix has just released a new film called Fatherhood, starring Kevin Hart. It's based upon an amazing memoir called Two Kisses for Maddie, a memoir of loss and love. In this incredible book, published by Grand Central back in 2011, Matt Loglin tells the story of his wife Liz giving birth to their daughter Madeline and then, tragically, dying a few hours later. This book is a raw, frank, honest account of Matt Loglin experiencing the inexplicable combination of joy over Madeline's birth and crushing sorrow over Liz's death. The book has now been republished under the title of the film, Fatherhood. I began my interview with Matt Loglin by asking him to talk about the very raw quality of this book, very much a reflection of his own personality, and if it was a conscious decision for him to tell the story in such frank terms. I think for me, I was most concerned about getting my feelings out. You know, this book is a book for my daughter, and and of course it's being published by a a pretty big publisher, and they have hopes that it's going to sell well and that everybody's going to read it. Uh, You know, and of course I I hold those things pretty important as well, but my primary goal here was to make sure that when my daughter someday reads this, and she'll be much older, of course, she'll be in her 20s, hopefully, and out of college, um, you know, I I want her to get a, a sense of how I was feeling at that exact moment, and you know, I, I think if you reflect on something as awful as what happened to our family, my, my wife dying in front of us uh, the day after our daughter was born, it just doesn't serve the story well. It doesn't serve reality well. And, and, and nobody nobody says things like, darn it, my wife died. You know, it just doesn't come out that way. And so I figured, you know, I, I had to put the words in there that I was thinking. I had to put the words in there that I said. And, you know, it, it, the people close to me are going to hold me accountable for the things that I say and the things that I write. And uh, and I knew that, that some people may criticize the language, but, but frankly, you know, if that's the worst thing they can criticize in the wake of my wife's death, if that's the worst thing that I did after she died, uh, I think I'm doing pretty well if I just swore a couple of times. Right. Well, and, and, and again, I think it's, it's one of the things that makes this book stand out from many, many others that have been written. Of course, some books like this and stories like this are told by people who, frankly, never do use the F word. And even as someone who is one of those people, I nevertheless appreciated the honesty with which you wrote this. And I felt like you were really opening the door and letting us into kind of the the deepest darkness which you experienced uh, in this story. And that's really what we ask for more than anything as readers. Well, well, thank you. I, I think that's exactly the key is that, um, you know, I've read a lot of memoirs in my life and, and I just feel like everybody's holding something back, like they're are pandering to an audience, or they're trying to make sure that they don't create any controversy. And I knew that talking about my um, sort of lack of religion, and I knew that uh, talking about uh, things in the frank way that I did would would bring people to criticize some of the writing, and they would criticize the things I'd gone through. But in the end, I can hold my head high, because when my friends read this book, they recognize the Matt that they've always known. You know, it's not the it's not the sanitized version of Matt that was used to sell books. And, uh, and I can stand by that, and I can be very, very proud of the fact that I didn't change just because I have a book deal and just because of that. And, and frankly, I don't want my daughter to think that, you know, things got softened after her mom died. I, there were times that I was very, very sad and very upset, 
And sometimes those words go a long way to, to not only express uh, a particular feeling, but also, you know, in, in recent studies, we've, <laughs> we've learned that swearing also helps alleviate both physical and, and uh, mental pain. And so, you know, I, I'm seeing that in, my, in both my daily life and, and, you know, the things that were happening uh, after Liz died. And, and I think that uh, it served me quite well. Uh, let's, uh, let's stop talking about the F word for a moment and talk about something that we can all agree is lovely, the Taj Mahal. The introduction, the forward to the book, includes a very intriguing story about the Taj Mahal and draws a very striking parallel between the two. That is that remarkable structure in India and your memoir. Explain that. Yeah, de- definitely. Uh, a few years before Liz died, actually, we had been in India. I was working there for Yahoo!, and she came out to visit for a couple of weeks, and we traveled up to the Taj Mahal. She wanted to go up to Agra, so we, we hit the uh, Golden Triangle area of northern India and, and did all sorts of wonderful sightseeing. But the Taj Mahal, of course, you know, for, for both its beauty and its fame, was something that we needed to see. And so we went there, and we got a guide, and the guide explained to us uh, the reason it was constructed. And, and if you're not familiar with the story, uh, the emperor, uh, Shah Jahan, uh, was asked by his wife just before she died. She died in childbirth, actually. Um, she had asked him to build uh, her the most beautiful monument uh, the world had ever seen in the event of his, her death. And uh, so when she did die, he went about building this just absolutely gorgeous uh, monument that, that now houses their remains. And Liz heard this story from our guide and was just so entranced by it, just absolutely blown away, whereas I felt you know, something that the, the tour guides maybe either concocted or at least uh, embellished a bit. And she turned to me and said, you know, you would never do something like this for me. And she was both kidding, but also she was thinking of the, the more figurative, you know, I would never build her this monument. And so as I sat down to write this book, I really felt that, that I had two monuments I was building for my wife. One was my daughter and, you know, the daily work that I put into making her the most wonderful child that she could possibly be and giving her the childhood that would lead her to be the best adult she could be, but also this book. It's, it's my testament to my love for my wife, and it's my testament to my love for my daughter, and it's my thanks to the people around me. And I think, you know, when you look at it in those, those fashions, I think it's, it's almost better than the Taj Mahal, at least in my sense. Like, I, it's not nearly as beautiful, maybe, but, but for me, I, I, I have this very strong sense that I've done something here that I hope my, my wife would have been so very proud of, and something that my daughter will be able to reflect upon someday and be so happy about. Um, but I know those teenage years are going to be difficult, so I don't, I'm, not, I'm not hoping for anything until she's at least 20. <laughs> We're speaking with Matt Loglin. We are talking about his memoir called Two Kisses for Daddy, a memoir of loss and love. Your book does uh, uh, tell us about how the two of you met, that is you and Liz, and uh, uh, what made her very, very special. At one point you write, Her smile invited people into her life, and her laughter made them stay. And, uh, but we also find out that there was, uh, your, your wife was a tremendously intelligent person, a person of, of uh, amazing strength and, and vitality, and the two of you enjoyed a, a, a wonderful life together. Um, when she first became pregnant and uh, when some problems developed, she was put on bed rest uh, for quite a long time. I, uh, and, and in the hospital, was it? Yeah, it was both uh, at home and in the hospital. So she did uh, a couple of weeks at home and then a, a few more weeks in the uh, in the hospital. That's right. When uh, when the problems were not alleviated by uh, the bed rest at home, she was put into the hospital. It, it turned out that one of the uh, unexpected blessings of that 
was that you had all of this time with nothing to do but talk. Uh, could you just say a word about what, what turned out to be a, a, a very valuable time for you and your wife to actually get to know one another even better than you already did? Yeah, definitely. I mean, we had, we had spent the majority of our early relationship living long distance. I mean, she lived in California while I was in Minnesota going to college. Uh, when I finished up college, I went to graduate school in Chicago, whereas she stayed in Los Angeles and got a job. And so, you know, if you think about that, that was a good six years of our lives together that we were in a, in a very committed relationship that we weren't living with one another. And so our conversations were sometimes very quick. Uh, sometimes they consisted of emails. And, you know, we didn't, we didn't have those, you know, oftentimes we didn't have those moments where we could sit down and have conversations that I like to say are about nothing, you know, things that you would never think about. And, uh, and being in the hospital with her where we had the TV off and we had nothing else going on, we could sit and talk about things like what her lucky number was and what she felt about religion in, in, in a very deep sense. Um, you know, because I knew how she felt and I had a general sense of, of, of how she felt about these things. But to be able to get down to the, you know, the, the really difficult details of some of these things sometimes was really wonderful for both of us. And uh, I'm not the only one who had that opportunity. I mean, I, I talked to Liz's dad all the time about this. And, you know, uh, while I was at work during the day, he spent hours upon hours talking to her on the phone while she was in the hospital. And the, the level of understanding that they came to, um, you know, in those weeks before she died and the conversations that they had were absolutely invaluable to him. And, and I feel the exact same way. We were so lucky to have those moments. And, uh, and I wouldn't wish that sort of bed rest or that kind of uh, lying on one side uh, of one's body for so long to anybody. But I wouldn't wish it on anybody. But I think, you know, if you're trying to find the positives in a really negative and, and awful situation, one of those positives is that we really got to know each other on a, on a level that we hadn't over the previous 12 years. Uh, when uh, things begin to uh, go wrong, there's some kind of alarming change in uh, uh, the, uh, was it the, the, the heart rate, I think, of uh, your unborn baby. Uh, yeah. that's when, uh, realized in your words, Madeline had to come out and play. <laughs> and, yeah, she did. And, uh, Madeline of course is, uh, successfully, uh, delivered. And you said there was kind of an interesting moment of clarity the first time you heard the sound of her screaming and realized that's not a baby, that's our baby. Yes. Yeah. It, it might sound funny, but I think, you know, especially for, uh, a man, you know, your, your real connection, I think there's two really big connections, or maybe three, when, when your wife is pregnant. The first one is seeing for the first time this child on the ultrasound. Because up until then, it's just a lot of, uh, you know, for, for Liz, it was a lot of morning sickness, and it was a lot of just kind of uh, being lethargic. But I didn't have this connection to this child until I saw it on the ultrasound monitor. And then the next big connection for me was seeing Liz actually, you know, getting a little bit bigger and having you know, having some sense that there was actually a baby in there. And then maybe, you know, you can add in the kicking and all of that. And when you can feel that, that's when the man, actually, I think, really feels physically connected to this child. And so, it, again, it may seem a little odd, but I'd been in the hospital with Liz for, for three weeks at that point, and I'd been used to hearing other babies crying. We'd been in uh, the maternity ward, and I'd been walking past, you know, the uh, the delivery rooms and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, I was used to hearing babies crying, and so it just didn't, strike me until all of a sudden I thought, my gosh, this is not just a baby. This is our baby, and we're going to be taking care of this thing. And, you know, that leads to all sorts of scary thoughts for a father, especially when you know it's a girl coming out. And so 
I, um, I was, yeah, I, it, it, that sudden realization is something that's almost indescribable, but something that's so powerful, I think, especially for those who have not carried the child for, you know, for, for an extended period of time. Right. And I like how the, you experienced it perhaps even more deeply when you are making your way to the uh, NICU to, uh, to actually see Madeline and a nurse stops you in the hall and asks you a question. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And it, I mean, it is amazing because I had been thinking, all right, I'll just go down to the, um, you know, to, to find my daughter in the regular, you know, delivery area. But it turns out, uh, you know, she was in the NICU and I had a hard time finding that. And when the nurse stopped me and said, are you Madeline's dad? That's something that hit me so incredibly hard. I just thought, wow, you know, that's how I'm going to be defined the rest of my life. You know, I mean, I've been, I've been the guy who likes music in the past. I've been the guy who, you know, who traveled for work uh, to India and back and forth uh, for, for Yahoo. And I've been all these other things in my life, but I'd never been called somebody's dad. And that, to me, was such a defining moment in the way that I knew I was going to be dealing with my daughter. Even before Liz died, I knew then that I was going to be, you know, uh, doing everything I could to be the best parent she had ever had. And then, of course, all of this joy uh, turns very, very dark when uh, things become uh, terribly precarious, uh, to say the least, for your wife, Liz. Explain to our listeners uh, when and how and what went wrong with Liz. Yeah, so so shortly after Madeline was delivered, they put her back, um, you know, into the high-risk ward, um, you know, which basically means that they're kind of monitoring her. And they were, at, at the time, had been monitoring Madeline. But uh, after having a C-section, you know, a lot of times it's uh, necessary for women to, to be laid up for a little bit simply because they have a rather large wound in their in their abdomen. And so they had told Liz that she would have to wait about 24 hours to go and meet Madeline. And so she was, you know, one of the things that she didn't always have was patience, and especially in a situation like this, she was so eager to meet her daughter. But, um, you know, she followed the instructions of the, the doctors and the nurses, and, um, and she, she waited. And 24 hours after, actually more specifically 27 hours after uh, Madeline was born, we finally got the go-ahead to, uh, to get uh, Liz up out of bed and for her to go see Madeline in, in the NICU. And so uh, I stood her up, and I helped her walk around the room a little bit because it's something she hadn't done in, in about five weeks. She'd been on bed rest and, and really had not even stood up. And so um, we kind of got her legs about her. I, I, don't, I can't imagine it. Not too many people probably who are listening can, can imagine what it feels like to be on bed rest for five weeks. And if you have been there, you can imagine it. It's, it's something that's not easy, and it takes a while for you to figure out how to walk again. It, it's it's something that's very difficult. And so uh, I aided her around the room for quite a while. And then um, as I was about to, to help her sit down in her, um, in her wheelchair so that we could go see Madeline, uh, she just said, I, I feel lightheaded, and she fell to the ground. And, um, you know, Liz was a, a quite a small woman. I mean, she was four foot eleven, and when not pregnant, probably weighed 110 or 115 pounds at most. And uh, it took three of us. It took me and two nurses to get her up off the ground and, and into a hospital bed. And uh, I've never felt anything so so heavy in my entire life. It was just the most awful feeling that one could have. But throughout it, the nurses that were with me kind of assured me that, oh, it was just a, a rush of blood to the head. It's something that happens quite often with women who've been on bed rest. And at the time, I just kind of assumed that that, that was the case. I mean, that, that this is something that's normal. Mm. And, of course, as it became increasingly apparent that 
this was a very, very serious situation and not normal in any way. You kept running. This was like a soundtrack in your mind desperately. Normal, 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 normal. They said this was normal, 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 normal. And, uh, of course, it all turns uh, ultimately to to your wife's entirely unexpected death, 27 hours after she has given birth uh, to Madeline. One of the things that is so incredible to think about is the topsy-turvy, absurd way in which your life turned in that moment. For all that there would be uh, to take in in terms of these two isolated events, to experience them both right on top of each other, we can scarcely imagine what that would feel like. Yeah, and, and I think I don't even know if I did it justice in the book or in any of the conversations I've had with people about this. I, you know, to, to be in that situation where you're so in love and you're so excited about this baby, and and you know you have all these expectations, and you know you've talked for years about what's going to transpire after this child comes home and how we're going to raise her and all of these things, and then to have that all completely disappear and have all this uncertainty that you would never even dream about um, sort of into your life in such a quick manner is, is something that's almost indescribable. I, I, I knew, um, and I had to, to deal with this in this way, um, you know, as soon as Liz died, I had to accept that she had died. You know, I think up until the moment that I realized that she was dead, I, I'd been trying to talk myself into thinking that this was normal, that things were going to be okay, you know, as if, as if hoping it would happen or hoping it would turn out differently would change the outcome. But once the outcome had been, you know, established, and once we knew what had happened, I really had to make sure in my mind that that I knew what had really happened. I had to take on the fact that I was now a single parent, that my wife had died, that my best friend had died, and I had to make my sole focus, um, you know, my daughter. And, and that didn't mean that I wasn't going to be mourning my wife, that I wouldn't be sad about her, but I really had to figure out a way to be the best parent that I possibly could in light of my circumstances. And, and I knew that what Liz would want more than anything is, is for me to be that parent, to mm. be the father that Madeline deserved and, and not hold her back from anything based on, you know, those, those 27 hours after her, after her birth. And, uh, and we don't want, you know, I knew that Liz would not want Madeline to be defined by that. And so, you know, uh, right then and there, I decided that that was, that was what I had to do was to be there for Madeline. You actually go running back to, to, to see Madeline just as quickly as you can. And, um, one of the most interesting moments is, after you have visited the, the funeral director and have looked at urns and so on, you return to the hospital and you write these words. I went straight for Madeline. I saw her lying in her incubator and the tears immediately started to flow, but these tears were different from the ones I'd been crying for the past few days. These were tears of relief. Right then, watching Madeline's little chest move up and down as she breathed, I knew I wouldn't be able to deal with any of this without her. Just two days old, and she was already saving me in a way that none of my friends and family could. One of the things that was especially hard, as you tell us, Liz handled all the tough decisions in your life together. So uh, you faced a plethora of tough decisions, and suddenly it was you who had to make them. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I, I make no bones about the fact that she was the smarter, more capable, more responsible adult in this relationship. She always had been. And she probably always would have been. And so when she died, you know, there, there's all these very practical things that one must deal with. It's not, you know, it's not something anybody wants to think about. But 
there are bills that need to be paid. There, um, you know, there, there are very adult things that people need to take care of. And I didn't know how to do any of them. I quite literally had no clue what I was doing. Um, you know, she had negotiated her mortgage. She had negotiated, um, you know, my, you know, I bought my car. She got the interest rate really low on my car. And, uh, and, and I thought about all that, you know, in the, the days and the weeks after she died. And, and I had to try to channel the things that I had watched her do. You know, she had taken care of everything around the house. Um, I was good at laundry. That's about it. But otherwise, she and I, I cooked too. But um, you know, she did all of the things that you would typically associate with sort of the the head of the household, and and I love that about her. And I had to think back about how I would do things or how Liz would have done things, and and that's what I had to channel. And and I think you know I learned a lot by osmosis. It's not something I expected, but I did pick up a lot from her uh, over those twelve years together. And and I'm just I'm I'm thankful for the moments that we did have together because without that, I would never have been able to survive those very difficult things that you have to deal with in, in a sort of practical sense after someone dies. Sure, and especially when you're a brand new parent. At one moment you wrote, I can't help but think that Madeline lost the better of her two parents. I mean, that kind of insecurity was certainly a, a, a very uh, harsh reality for you. I was so struck by some of the little telling details in which you uh, try to function in those first days and weeks after Liz's death. One moment that uh, shows us uh, such something so intriguing is that you didn't want to delete the the shows that Liz had DVR'd, even though they weren't shows that you ever wanted to watch. But somehow deleting those was would have been somehow disrespectful to her. Tell our listeners about the answering machine at your home and why yeah. you couldn't even go near it for a long time. Yeah, you know it's funny. I um. I, I had been, I had, I had several voicemails on that phone, on that answering machine, because we'd been, you know, staying in the hospital for a long time, and I'm sure some of them were quite important. Um, but, but soon after Liz died, um, you know, I had gotten a couple other phone calls, and and one of the the phone calls I got was from the coroner, the county coroner in Los Angeles, uh, leaving me a message, and, and that was something that I, I just could not listen to. He was calling me about the cause of death, and and he, I'm sure he didn't explain it on the phone. Actually, no. He told left me a message telling me about the cause of death, and that's exactly why I couldn't listen to it. Um, but also, there was a message from Liz, and for me, especially after she died, you know, I, I had a really difficult time hearing or, or even thinking about hearing her voice <clears throat> or seeing her on video because that, to me, having someone animated in that sense, um, you know, it, it really brings to light the sort of dichotomy of, of life and death. I mean, with a still image, with a photo you know, they're not moving. It's a, it's a moment in time that's been captured. And I love looking at her photos. It's something that I, I really enjoy. They're all over my house still to this day. But I've still not been able to watch a video, and I've still not listened to that voice message. And it's something that, um, you know, I, I want to keep for Madeline, and I want her to be able to have those those moments. I want her to be able to hear what her mom's voice sounded like and what she looked like when she walked and all of that stuff. But right now, I'm not ready to take that on. You tell us that one thing that really helped you was Madeline's very strict schedule. That gave your life some stru- structure and format, which helped you function so well. Something else that was very striking is uh, the role that strangers played. Sometimes they were your greatest source of comfort, you tell us. You open Chapter 14 with these words. The people I encountered in public had no clue what I was going through. 
It's not that I expected them to. Obviously, strangers don't generally know what's going on in another stranger's world. But my entire life had fallen apart, and it felt crazy to see everyone around me continuing on as if nothing at all had happened. But then you go on in the next paragraph to say sometimes those strangers could be the greatest source of comfort. And you're saying this in light of amazing friends and family who (laughs) were just, I mean, an incredible source of help for you. But tell us how strangers were also a help. Yeah, you know, I I think there's several reasons for that. I mean, when you have such a strong network of family and friends, I mean, it's so helpful, and and I will never discount the the kind of help that they provided me. They they got me through some of my darkest moments. Um, But but when you go through something like this, there's always that, at least for me, there was that feeling that I was also in, I I had to comfort them to a certain degree, because it wasn't just me, and it wasn't just Madeline who, who experienced the death of Liz, you know, my best friend who had grown up, you know, watching us date and who had been with us through some of our biggest moments, you know, he and his wife suffered uh, through Liz's death. And our families and our friends, they all did. And so when I talked to them and when they were in the process of comforting me, I, I, I have this very sort of empathetic sense that I really wanted to also comfort them. And I know they didn't want that. I know they didn't, they weren't doing that to, to get empathy from me. They were trying to help me out, but I could never really shake the fact that I was also trying to help them. And so in meeting strangers who had never met Liz before, who had no memories of her, who had no sense of how I was feeling, I sometimes got the most amount of empathy from them. You know, they really felt bad. They felt, you know, they're both uh, empathetic and sympathetic. And it was such a nice feeling to have these people sort of just wanting to do whatever they could to help out. And I didn't feel any obligation to them. I didn't feel like I needed to give them anything. And, uh, and it's very selfish. I have to admit, it's a very selfish thing. But um, I found that the, the help of these strangers was so incredible, and, and it only evolved from there. I mean, I, I talk about it in the book a little bit. I met people just, you know, at, at Home Depot or at the bank who, who would see my tears and who would understand what was happening. But, um, you know, there were, there were other people who were reading my blog later who, who would read my words and want to do anything they could to help me and to help Madeline out. And it's not, it's not that I was writing saying, you know what, we're really in need of diapers or we're really in need of anything, actually. All I was saying was, you know, this is what I'm doing with my daughter today. This is what we did yesterday. And these people felt the need to, to step in and do whatever they could because, um, you know, I wasn't in their local community necessarily. Sometimes I was, sometimes I wasn't. But the Internet allowed this community to grow to such a large degree that that um, it replaced, you know, sort of the traditional notions of community. And I had people on the other side of the country and sometimes the other side of the world sending me items uh, to, to help cheer me up and to help get me through day-to-day life with Madeline. And those strangers, um, you know, are just incredible if you think about that. That's just absolutely amazing that somebody would do that. Hmm. And so you end up feeling a little differently about the Internet because I remember earlier in the book, right after Liz dies, you say the bad thing about the Internet is that word travels fast, and you ended up being just overwhelmed by the concern of those who learned this news. But Ultimately, uh, at this stage in the story, the Internet becomes something that uh, is of tremendous help to you. Absolutely. I mean, I, I studied sociology, you know, in the, in the mid-1990s and into the early 2000s. And, and even back then, the, the assumption was that we were going to become more isolated from our, our, our people. You know, we were going to become less social uh, beings because of the Internet. And what I found to be the, the case was the exact opposite. I mean, I became uh, so very entrenched in a community that didn't before exist. It, it did not exist, um, at least for me. 
And so to have all of these people who I didn't know, who at first were, were searching out my address on the Internet, you know, they were going online to find out where I lived, um, and not to harm me, not to do anything uh, negative, but to send me things. Um, I, I talk about it in the book, but a woman sent me all of the ingredients for chicken soup. She overnighted it to me because she read on my blog one day that I was sick. And if you think about that, she lived in northern Minnesota, and I live in Los Angeles. And for somebody in, in I, I never would have been able to connect with that person in northern Minnesota uh, had I not had uh, the Internet to, to kind of you know do that for me. And so that's such an incredible thing if you think about it. And then on top of it, I, I, you know, she did that in real time, but then I also uh, was unable to open the box in real time because I had so many packages arriving in my doorstep. And it took um, quite a significant time to open up that box, and, and there it was, all of the fixings for chicken noodle soup rotting in the bottom of a box. And so, you know, it, it was amazing to see that kind of care and, and generosity coming from people I'd never met and, and most likely never would meet. We're listening back to a 2011 conversation with Matt Loglin author of the best-selling book, Two Kisses for Maddie, a memoir of loss and love. The memoir is the basis of a new Netflix film called Fatherhood, starring Kevin Hart. One thing that intrigued me greatly is when you tell us about a conversation which you and your wife had before Madeline was was ever born, and it was around this uh, issue that with which most young parents wrestle to some extent, and that is how much the lives which they were already enjoying would change. And if they would uh, make some kind of effort to not allow it to change everything utterly. Um, You write these words at the opening of chapter 21. Before Madeline was born, Liz and I had many conversations about what our lives with her would and should be like. Of course, they never included the possibility of a future without me there or without her there. We figured our biggest challenges would be whether or not our daughter needed braces, if we liked her boyfriends, or where she should go to school. But we firmly agreed that she would not absorb our entire selves. This baby is not going to change our lives, Liz would say. This baby is not going to change our lives. I would agree. We knew our lives would change in a good way. But even with the middle of the night feedings that our friends talked about and the sleepless nights we were primed for, it was our intention to maintain who we were and what we had become together. In in light of life's unexpected turn, uh, with the unexpected death of your wife, uh, tell us about that intention. Did it mean anything from that point on since so much of your life had already changed with, with Liz's death? But did you try to hold on to any of that original intention? Oh, absolutely. And, you know, I mean, the reason that that conversation even happens is because I think when you meet parents, especially parents who've had multiple children sometimes, um, you you hear a lot of the horror stories. You hear a lot of people talking about how difficult things were, how hard it is to have so many children, or, you know, even, even what it's like to have to get a kid to a baseball game or something like that. And what we really wanted to do was try to focus on the fact that we were going to enjoy our lives with our child. And, and that meant bringing our child along with us to do certain things. And so, um, you know, we were avid travelers. We had traveled all over the world together. And that's something that we wanted to continue to do. We didn't know how we were going to do it. We didn't have the answers for that. But we knew that's something we wanted to do. And so, you know, after, after Liz died, even in the first couple of uh, months, you know, when, when Madeline was allowed to travel, I started traveling with her. And uh, she's three years old now, and, and she's now been on close to 75, maybe even more round-trip flights with me. And, uh, I mean, we just got back from, from Maryland yesterday. We spent 
two days in Maryland uh, for a book festival that I was doing, and my daughter flew along with me. And we had just come back from Minnesota the, the Tuesday before. So, you know, those are the things that we wanted to continue to do. And, and even when Madeline was first born, um, you know, I had to maintain some sense of who I was because, like you said, my entire life had changed. I, I had become a widower. I had become a single dad. And, you know, those things do define my life to a certain extent, but I don't want them to be the only definitions for my life. And so, uh, yeah, I, I, I would find the time to get a babysitter from time to time, and I would go out to a concert with some of my friends. Or I would take an hour by myself sometimes and go and have dinner, you know, just to maintain who that person was. And I would read a book, and I would just get that, you know, that sense of, you know, Matt still is in there. I'm still in that body that has completely been, you know, thrown into upheaval. My, my personality is still there. And to maintain that in a way uh, that was meaningful to me and, and also to my family and my friends and, and ultimately to my daughter meant that I could give her the life that I wanted to. I wasn't going to resent her for changing my life. I wasn't going to resent Liz uh, specifically for dying because, you know, it wasn't her fault. It's not something she planned. Um, and I'd been warned by grief counselors, or they'd been at least warning my family that I would someday be angry with Liz for leaving me, or that, uh, you know, I would be upset that she had died. And, you know, of course I was sad that she was not here to be able to be with us, and I missed her immensely, but I never had that anger. And I think part of that is maintaining who I was. I, I, was, I, I was still doing the things that made me who I am, and, uh, and that, that allowed me to, to really give everything I had to Madeline at the end of the day. One of the things that is helpful in a book that is so honest uh, is that you, you, you really take us through what it has been like for you to grieve the loss of your wife. And, uh, and in particular, the many sort of small details that uh, have been part of your experience and some of the uh, unexpected moments of, uh, of terrible pain for you. One of them was when you returned from some kind of a trip that uh, that you had taken. Um, I believe this was when you uh, took a trip for a, a, a someone's wedding and had uh, flown with Madeline, and uh, it was it was a tough experience uh, to to be at this wedding and with certain friends, but without Liz. But in some ways, the most painful moment of that whole experience happened when you came back home and saw a way in which your, your, your home had been transformed by the housekeeper. Can you share this story with our listeners? Yeah, definitely. It's, um, you know, it, it's one thing to, to sort of maintain your home in your own way. You know, you, uh, I, I, I'm a man and I have a tendency to be a little messy, and I don't mean to fit the stereotype, but I, I certainly do in this case. Um, and, and Liz was very meticulous and wanted things clean and orderly and, uh, she did little things like buy decorative pillows. I mean, I, I find pillows to be a, a functional item to have in the house, whereas hers were, uh, you know, sometimes just more for, for fashion. And, um, and so after having been in Minnesota with, with Madeline, her first trip there, and after having, you know, spent time with my family and all of my friends for my cousin's wedding, um, I, I was feeling really sad. I was missing Liz in a way that um, I really, I guess, possibly hadn't anticipated. You know, I, I knew that I'd be missing her, but seeing all these people and having these people kind of looking at me in a way that, that kind of said, you know, we feel really bad for you and we're glad it's not us, um, which is kind of the look I always got. It, that was difficult. But then I came home, and, um, and, and I'd been away for about a week or so. And when I got back, 
one of Liz's friends, um, who who'd been very, very supportive throughout this, had been just such a great woman, and her family's been so supportive. Um, they had arranged for one of her friends to come over and, and do some work around my house, just to kind of clean up and tidy up and do my laundry, and just as a nice surprise while I was gone. And uh, when I returned, I went back into my bedroom for the first time since I'd been gone, and the bedroom had been made up exactly as if Liz had done it. I mean, it was just incredible. The, the decorative pillows were back on the bed. The bed had been made. All the clothes that I'd been, you know, washing along the way and, and folding and just piling in a corner had been placed back in their drawers. And everything just looked like it should have looked if Liz had been there. And that just kind of put me into a spot where I didn't know what to do. I had no idea how to, how to even process that. And, um, and, and so I was very, very sad. And that just put me onto the couch for the next few months. I, I ended up sleeping on the couch because I couldn't bear to go back into the room at that point. Um, and, and that's not something I anticipated. And like I said, it, the, the surprise of having someone to come in and clean your house is such a nice one, especially when you're in my situation. But there's these unintended consequences like, like what I just explained, and it was, it was really, really tough to, to deal with. Right. Uh, another story you share in the next chapter comes when you took a trip to Canada with your wife's family. And uh, in so many ways, it was a wonderful trip. But at one point, you just felt this need to be alone with Madeline. And one of the things you say about feeling that is that you say, I, I love Liz's, fam- Liz's family dearly, and I knew that they loved me. But we hadn't yet figured out how to mourn together. And I thought that was so striking because uh, I'm sure that is something that plays out again and again, and we don't stop to think about how complicated that can be, Uh, the difficulty of trying to mourn together when, of course, each of us uh, is likely to mourn a particular loss in our own particular way. Absolutely, and, and that's something that I think so many families struggle with, and, and I don't see that talked about in grief books. I mean, I mean, I think it's pretty obvious when you hear somebody say, oh, everybody grieves differently, but what does that really mean? You know, because they can be grieving and I can be grieving, but we are together a lot, and I spent a lot of time with Liz's family, and I spent a lot of time with my family as well, uh, you know, and, and especially in the year after Liz died. But the, the relationship that I had with Liz's parents is so much m- different and so much more unique than the one that I have with my own parents because, you know, they raised me, they know everything about me, and they kind of informed my, you know, my way of thinking throughout my life. And so they could be there in a way that, that they understood I needed. Whereas Liz's family, I mean, I, I had known them for 12 years, but, um, and we were close for sure, but they didn't know how I needed to be supported through this whole process. And so I, I know for a fact, and I, you know, and, and since then, and, and, and even later in the book I describe it, they were doing everything they possibly could to make me comfortable and happy to the detriment of their own feelings. I mean, and if you think about that, that's a really incredible thing to do. They had lost their daughter. Their daughter died. And, and you know, and I was keenly aware of this from the beginning, that, that everybody was dealing with this death. I mean, we all were missing this person in our lives that was so important. But Liz's family did something that was so incredible. And, and, and as I said, they put everything aside. They put their feelings aside. They put their sadness aside to make sure that I was taken care of, to make sure that my daughter was taken care of. And for them to be as selfless as that is just incredible. And it's not something I recognized at the beginning because I just saw them being silent. You know, they didn't want to talk about Liz. That's how I felt about it. They didn't want to, they didn't want to mention Liz. But what it came down to was they didn't want to mention her in front of me because they thought it would make me sad. And I hadn't yet communicated the fact, at least, you know, overtly, I hadn't said, 
let's let's talk about her. I want to hear more stories about her. I want to hear about her childhood, and I want these to be present for Madeline as she gets older. I hadn't said that yet, and so all they were doing was protecting me. And if you think about that, that is about the most amazing thing uh, somebody's parents could do after they've lost their own child. So mm. I, I think I'm so thankful for them and, and for everything they did in my life. Mm. And I'm grateful. I think anyone who reads your book is grateful that you've also taken the time to share about a little moment like that, because that's, as you say, something that does not show up in the typical book written on this on this topic. Um, among the many intriguing difficulties for you was what to do with your wife's cell phone. And this, again, is something where I don't think, uh, unless someone takes the time to really uh, share deeply about what they've experienced, this is something that someone might not even mention. Uh, but you found yourself compelled to keep your wife's cell phone activated, paying its monthly bills and so on. Um, just talk a moment about what you think that cell phone represented and how you uh, eventually came to terms with that. Yeah, you know, it, it represented several things. I mean, I knew that there were friends of hers who would call and just listen to her voicemail message. You know, they just wanted to hear her voice. And that was something I wasn't yet prepared for. And I didn't know when I might be. I thought there was a possibility that maybe I'd wake up one morning and think, oh, man, I really want to hear her voice on her voicemail message, because it was very pleasant. I mean, she had the nicest voicemail message you've ever heard. It, it sounded like it had been professionally recorded or something. But, um, you know, I, I just didn't know what I what I needed at that point. And, you know, I, I think there's an idea that people keep the stuff around because they can't let go. And, and there's a there's a certain truth to that, I think. And I wasn't trying to preserve any sort of, like, memorial to my wife. It wasn't like this kind of creepy idea that I wanted to save everything as it had been before she died. Um, I, I just really didn't want to take away anything that, that my friends might need or that her friends might need to deal with her death. Because sometimes people need to hear that voice one more time to understand that she's gone. Um, you know, it's it just all depended on that. But also, you know, I just felt bad about it. I didn't, you know, she had had this phone number for many, many years, and it was a, it was a great phone number that actually got mixed up a lot um, with, a, with a local hotel. So we get calls in the middle of the night asking for rooms and things like that. And so there was a comical side to that that I didn't even mention in the book. But, um, you know, I, I really wanted to keep that around, and I wanted to make sure that if anybody else called who she had worked with, who I might not have known, um, that I could be able to answer that phone and explain what had happened. Because, you know, even even in the digital age, I mean, this, this news travels pretty quickly, but there are certain people in this world who might not be, a, you know, <laughs> might not be reading the local paper or might not have seen the blog or might not have even known she had been pregnant and might not have been, you know, wondering how she was doing until one day they just thought of her and decided to call. And so, you know, there were several, several reasons for me to keep that up and running. And, um, and, and you know, it's... <laughs> It was a difficult decision to finally do it, and the only reason I really shut it down was because, um, you know, I could hear Liz telling me, "You're spending way too much money on this. This mm -hmm. is stupid. You're spending you're spending you know hundreds of dollars every couple months here uh, trying to keep this phone active." and uh, and, and it's, a, it's a weird concern to have, especially these days when everyone's so connected. I mean, phones are not just phones anymore. They're, they're also ways that you receive your email, and that's people's lifeline to their friends and family sometimes. And so with her BlackBerry, I was getting, you know, several emails from people who, um, you know, either didn't know she had died or people who did know she had died but needed to pour their heart out to her in a way that, that was only going to be seen by them, and I was respectful enough not to read them. 
um, because I knew who they were, and, and I could see that, and they obviously knew she had died. And so I just let those be, and I thought it was such a wonderful thing to actually even know that they were coming through, and to see those tributes just in the subject line was so incredible for me. But eventually it was time to uh, to shut that down just to save some money. Right. Well, and of course, speaking of money, you ultimately uh, formed the Liz Logan Foundation, and uh, and uh, probably started thinking about some of these monetary matters a little bit differently. But in our closing couple of minutes, I want to uh, talk about one more phase of this experience. At one point you write, Liz's death turned me into an uncertified expert in death and dealing with it, which was both a blessing and a curse. The blessing was that I could offer a truly informed opinion based on personal experience. The curse, well, to be confronted with so much death and sadness on such a regular basis. Uh, we're talking, of course, about the blog which you kept, which in which you were able to share your thoughts and, of course, were inundated by not only the concerns of others but their own stories of terrible grief. Um, just speak a moment about what that experience was like, an experience which I assume, at least to some extent, you're having to this very day. Absolutely, yeah. It, it continues on. And, and what's, what's great, again, about this community formation that happens with blogs and, you know, by meeting people virtually, is that you have the shared experience that everybody can kind of get behind and, and you can, you know, you can have this instant community very, very quickly and uh, you can have a community of people who, you know, quote, gets you, you know, who understands your situation in a way that, that people who haven't experienced the death of a partner, you know, sometimes just can't even relate to. And, um, and and that's a wonderful thing, but there's also a really difficult side to that. And so when you're the public face of grief, and not, not to say that I'm the only one or that I'm the most important or anything like that, but in my small community of people I'd met, you know, my blog was getting the most attention, and I was, you know, I was meeting so many more people than they were sometimes that it, it, it was really weighing on me. It was a difficult thing to wake up and see an email from somebody in the middle of the night, I would hear my daughter crying and needing a bottle, and I would go to feed her, and, and I would see this, you know, email from someone as I was going back to sleep, and it was just, it, it just crushed me every time I had to re- read about another family who was dealing with, with this situation, and, and I just, I didn't know if I should continue on with this, should I shut the blog down, because I didn't want to be the face of this, I didn't want to be the person that people wrote to or called when they needed help, but Ultimately, I think the desire to help people out and the desire to share my experience so that people know they're not alone, so that they understand that there are different ways to deal with this, and that sometimes families are supportive and sometimes that they're not, um, you know, that, that, that trumped my need to be, you know, by myself and to be selfish and all of that stuff. But, uh, you know, I, I, to this day, I'm pretty thankful for what we've accomplished. You know, I've met lots of people who I think have read my blog and said, you know, this has helped me deal with it, uh, you know, the death of my partner. Or, um, for instance, I met a woman down in Austin, Texas recently who's, um, who's got terminal cancer, and she's got, you know, not very much longer to live. And she said my blog had allowed her and her family to enjoy their time together before she does die. And knowing what I've been through, she thinks that her husband and her daughter are going to be just fine after she dies. Of course, they're going to miss her, and they're going to, you know, they're going to be sad for the rest of their lives. But they know she knows now that they'll be able to survive without her, and I think that is such a powerful thing. And if I hadn't shared my story, this woman and her family, um, you know, maybe they would have found somebody else. And I hope that's the case. But if they hadn't, you know, th- this time together before she died could be a very, very lonely moment. And so, um, you know, I, I'm thankful again that I've been able to to meet these kinds of people to understand that. Uh, 
you know, the, the, the things that I've shared have actually helped them in a way that I didn't intend on and that I didn't seek out to do. And, and I think that's what's so wonderful about this, that, that shared experience can help people in so many unintended ways. Matt Loglin's book is Two Kisses for Maddie, a memoir of loss and love, initially broadcast by Grand Central Publishing back in 2011, re-released now under the title Fatherhood, which is also the title of the Netflix film version starring Kevin Hart.